the biggest thing I've noticed is that most business owners right now, they're feeling the crunch because there's not a lot of talent out there. It's a competitive market. It's going to get more competitive. So understanding the science of developing talent is a big deal. Welcome, Closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season two on sales. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100 units or 1,000, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Reach Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of hosting my friend and coach, Dan Tacchini. Dan has been a business coach for many, many years. He's been an executive trainer and coach for over 35 years, if I got that right. And he's worked with all kinds of sales leaders, sales managers, salespeople, boots on the ground. Today, we're going to go through the process of exploring Dan's insight on how to drive an effective sales organization. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jordan. I appreciate it. That's nice. Now I hope I don't let anybody down after that great introduction. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to record that, give that to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's easier to do for you because I, I know you quite a bit better than a number of the other guests that I've had on the show. It really is a real pleasure to have you on. And I just want to start here. Give me some quick background for the audience so they can understand where you're, where you're coming from in terms of coaching, training, et cetera. I grew up in, uh, you know, a, an entrepreneurial family. My father's the first generation Italian uh, over here. And, but my, my grandfather opened the first talking motion picture theater north of San Francisco with barely more than a high school education. And my father has taken that and made it one of the top theater movie theater circuits in the country. You know, my my grandfather's family started, uh, my brothers were partners with the Aliotos and started the produce business in the early 1900s in San Francisco. And so I grew up in that environment. Secondly, my my mother was a uh, manic depressive schizophrenic. And I know it doesn't sound, what would what that have to do with this? But I actually learned to communicate with her in order to just kind of stay connected to her. And over the years, she's done real well. But during that time, I had the privilege of um, getting involved in a lot of different types of oh, therapy and philosophy, et cetera, around communication, which really plays into the entrepreneurial world, building a business, selling services or products or projects like that. Hmm. I didn't know that about your mother. So it's kind of a necessity as the mother of invention sort of, of scenario. You had some life circumstances that, that forced you to begin to master some of the things that are now your bread and butter. I, my first book I ever read, I was 12 years old, I read 
a book called um, The Myth of Mental Illness, and then I read a book called, uh, actually it was an article, and then I read a book called Gestalt Therapy Verbatim, and all of it was around communication and understanding how to communicate with people who communicate differently than we're used to. Yeah, it's some pretty heavy reading for a 12-year-old. And well, you know, it's like you said, necessity. When you want to talk to your mother, you can tell she's trying to say something. You just don't understand it, which is, I don't know about you, but I've had plenty of clients like that, too. <laughs> <laughs> so translate that into what you currently do today. I know you're a coach because you coach me. We've been working together for a number of months now. It's been immensely helpful, but I know that you've worked with a number of organizations as well as individuals. What does your coaching and training practice look like? Well, I, I have uh, two companies. One's a public, I call the general public facing company, and it's a, a training company I've been doing. I started out in the human potential movement in the late 70s and learned that whole that whole craft and developed a series of trainings and coaching. In fact, I started a coaching company in 1982 called The Coaching Company, but it was a little too early. And uh, most of the business owners thought we were a sports organization. I've built and sold a number of different training companies and consulting firms. And this public-facing company is called Blood and Ethos. It's the Institute for Heroic Living. And it's basically, we do all kinds of personal development trainings and coaching for the general public. And then I have another company that's a consulting firm. It's called The Talent Helix. And we do everything around talent development including sales and management training and strategic consulting. So so let's tie this to sales. Sales is one of those areas of the organization that is probably more likely to get an investment. I'm thinking of soft skills type training in terms of bringing in a professional, a coach, a trainer, etc., I think that one of the reasons that that is the case is that unlike other aspects of the organization that are viewed as being more mechanistic in terms of operations, sales has a little bit of that X factor. There's the perception that it's a combination of uh, part charisma, part gut intuition, but when we deconstruct it, there obviously are some common elements, some learned behaviors, some patterns of success. So starting here, what is sales at its core, Dan? One of my, in fact, our byline at uh, the Talent Helix is that success doesn't have to be a black box. And so you're kind of hitting on it. There's a there's an art and a science to success in sales. And at the bottom line, sales is is a mastery basically of a craft and it begins with listening. You know, a great listener can be a great salesman. When a lot of people have the mis conception that a great salesman's a great talker, but a great listener knows what to say to support uh, and to to persuade and open up possibility for with people. There are five basic areas that I think people need to master. And I think they've got to, I know as a, as a young man, I had to, I really thought, you know, I could go in there and just persuade people to do what I thought I wanted them to do. And what I learned was all I needed to do was get out of the way and help people do what they already wanted to do. And that's why they came to me was to buy something or, you know, a product, a service, or even a project that they want to put together. And I would say mastering that art of getting out of the way supporting and understanding people in what they already want and providing them the choices that'll get them that, that will they'll have an opportunity to choose exactly what they want 
So that's what sales is for me. I mean, it's just that simple. And there's some basic principles in it. I mean, number one, I've found that understanding how money works for me, how I have my financial situation, understanding the uh, ups and downs of finance and understanding what my goals are going in is vital uh, to being able to, to really make myself relevant to the client. What do you mean by that? You're just basically understanding your side of the equation of, uh, of getting square on what your needs, wants, and desires are before you make any suppositions about the other party. Is that what you're getting at? That's right. I, I want to be, be squared away. I don't want any of my survival involved in the process. So I want to know how I'm put together. And by the way, that comes in handy when I'm starting to talk with a client. It always ends up working in there, understanding their financial situation, under, in understanding how they relate to money. And so by knowing that in myself and being squared away, I have a good foundation to move from. So I know it sounds odd, but every great sales guy I've studied, that's the first thing they tell me. You know, it, it totally makes sense. There's enough going on on the other side of the table. Why complicate it with your own baggage and issues as opposed to having clarity on, on your end? That's yeah. the thing that you have more control over. Both personally and, and corporately. I mean, I want to be squared away on both sides. I don't want my agenda or the company's agenda to, you know, foul the water. That's that's basically what I'm after. Sure, sure. What are some other kind of pillar concepts for you that you mentioned that was one? Another one is, you know, follow-up. I think the money is in the follow-up. How often, how you follow up, the ways that you follow up. It takes five to seven contacts before somebody generally buys anything. And those contacts can't just be, hey, come spend money with me, but really a concern about how is this client doing? How's this customer doing? How can I serve them? You know, I, I sold asphalt for a long time. Uh, I was a sales manager for an asphalt company and working with property managers, etc., was key. And I know that the property manager they had to please somebody else. The decision maker was one step removed. So I wanted to make sure that I was giving that extra value and that they they could count on me for service before, you know, before they, I was going to get a sale. I had to add value to them. So understanding them, following up on their needs, their, what they're up to, how can I best serve them, always brought the best business. And, and, it, it, I, I realized it would take maybe five, seven contacts before something might happen. And each contact had to be of value to them. So that was a big deal for me. Yeah, that, and that's how you build ongoing, right? That's how you get your reoccurring sales is people feel you build the trust factor and the credibility factor by doing that. So, Dan, when we talk about follow-up, we enter potentially the realm of the rote, the realm of discipline, but we also have the opportunity to talk about the mental orientation of the long game. Because in my mind, there are kind of there are a couple of schools of thought here. One is, hey, you just need to grind it out like a machine, follow up religiously, just like a body lifter doing doing that curl kind of blindly. And the other is doing it out of a position of, of optimism, of relationship building, of playing the long-term game that says, not only do I want this sale, but I want the renewal. I want the expansion revenue on the account, and I want the three other accounts that this person can refer to me. How 
should someone approach follow-up and what goes wrong that causes people to so frequently drop the ball on something that that's pretty obvious? I had the privilege many years ago to, to actually do a training at Harvard, and I was part of the Disney University for about seven years. And one of the things that we got into was understanding the interests that are my client's interests and how they intersect with my own interests. And if I I understand their interests, both there's their personal interest, the personal interest of the person I'm speaking with, there's the company interest that they have, that they're trying to serve, and that the pressures that they're up against internally, there's their there's their personal life, etc. How much do I know about this client? How much do I know about the problem they're trying to solve? How much do I know about the competition that I'm that I'm up against and what my differentiators are and how they actually play into the interest of the client. You know, who else is at the table that I can't see? Who is this client representing and how can I make sure they are winning with the people that they're answering to that have interest and influence into the deal? If I'm aware of that, when I'm following up, I'm going to be relevant to them. Otherwise, I'm just calling up like, you know, they get it. They can taste the selfishness. They can taste the, you know, the manipulation. They can taste it. So, you know, if I'm calling because I'm desperate or I'm, or because I need a deal or because it's just the thing to do. And I know that I've been told that after the five or seven contacts they're going to buy, um, it gets rote, just like you said. It gets flat. There's no life. There's no connection. And trust is the name of the game. Credibility. Mm-hmm. So you're looking for that deepest felt need. You're exploring until you find it because you know that when you do find it, it's going to be the key that's actually going to translate the conversation into action. Totally makes sense. I think that's a more uh, enriched and mindful view of what we would typically talk about discovery. Now, when we talk about discovery, we're talking about where the conversation should begin in query. That is maybe a little ahead of some of the language that tends to get a, uh, a bad rap. When people start talking about things like scripts, for example, a lot of people's eyes glaze over. But what the idea of a script is getting at is having a thoughtful, premeditated, muscle memory type response to the common needs, wants, and objections of the client. We've talked a lot offline about the importance of, of language in general. What is wound up or packed up in the words, the language, and the dialogue that, that goes back and forth with the prospect? Oh, well, we could do 20 podcasts on that one. So I'm just going to break it down. I'm a big researcher, so I do a ton of reading. I do a ton of training. I've done everything from Tony Robbins to, you know, um, you know Grant Cardone, you, know, you name it, Carnegie, Dale Carnegie. Uh, I've studied all kinds of it. And the idea is I've noticed that there's a saying, language is the house of being. It's a philosophical saying. And what it means is that we people, and neuroscience has proven this out, I'm Recently, there's been just a ton of uh, great literature around neuroscientific studies about the human brain and how it responds. And there are three basic principles that have been discovered or illuminated and can be utilized in a very powerful way. One is people always act congruently with the way the world actually occurs to them. So, you know, if I think you're here to help me, if I really believe you're here to help me, whether you are or not, 
I'm going to act congruently with that. And on the other side is true, too. If I think you're here to hurt me, even though you're here to help me, I'm still going to act congruent with the concern that I have in my body uh, that you're here to hurt me. And so what tends to happen is we don't pay attention to our language because the second principle is the way the world occurs for people actually happens in language. Most people don't stop to think about the impact, the neurological impact that language has both on you personally and on the person you're talking to. So, for instance, if I said, hey, why don't you write down right now, write down your your biggest challenge in your work, in your sales. If you're selling, what's your biggest challenge? Go ahead, write it down. Jordan, what do you got? What do you come up with? Yeah, I mean, my, my biggest challenge is... Um leading myself and managing my own mental game on a day-to-day basis. To okay. So now if you, if you noticed how you said that, you stated it, leading myself and managing myself on a day-to-day basis in, in the work that you're doing, right? Managing, right? Staying motivated. When you state it as a, a statement, what your brain does is go around gathering the information that it needs to literally be right about that statement. That's a neuro fact. Now, if you stated it like this, and I, I discovered this because I have my son is a savant. He's a, he's an unbelievable engineer, and you know he's about ready to blow some minds on the internet. But I noticed when I work with him, he's got four degrees from Berkeley, all in science, and you know he's exa- he exhausted the math there, and he's a real interesting cat. But one of the things I I like people, and I watch what they do and what makes them good, and I noticed. I ask him, well, what are you doing? I'm solving this problem. Well, what's the problem? Well, I'm trying to figure out how I can blah, 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 blah. What is it going to take for this to open up or that? When you start to frame your challenges as questions, you see the problem differently. That little shift, I've had people come back and say, well, that's amazing. So if you you sat down and you write down your biggest challenge and you do it detailed and then you frame it as a question and you live in it then it opens up and you kind of look out from that question. It opens up other possibilities. And if you really want to have fun, take that same challenge, sit down with three people that you work with, make a game, make a game out of it. I call it question storming, like brainstorming. And you just come up with 50 questions about the problem. Nobody gets to answer any of the questions. Nobody gets to tee it up. You only get to ask one question at a time. You don't get to ask another question until that question's been written down and people are thinking about it. And what will happen is the questions will get more and more vital. Once you have 50, pick the top five and answer those and see what happens. So you know I'm digging this, Dan. When we started doing our coaching work together, it was largely predicated upon our first interaction in which I texted you, and I tested you by bringing you a large, crusty, intractable problem. And in the course of whatever the call was, 45 minutes, by the end of the call, I was able to realize that not only did the problem not exist, but to the extent that it did exist, I was the one creating it as opposed to the folks that I was blaming it on. And that was both both freeing, but also 
it was a little scary just to realize that I had that much anxiety about a problem that didn't exist. And it was largely a matter of my perspective, my orientation, and the level of certainty that I had, the commitment to being right about the problem as opposed to, as you said, exploring the possibilities. But let's get practicals because we're talking about sales, Dan. That's what we're talking about. So if somebody is in a sales role, they're executing the sales plan. They're picking up the phone and they're coming from a place of this isn't working, people aren't buying, the product is wrong, they're frustrated, or from the manager's perspective of the salesperson's not working, the salesperson's broken, I need to fire them. What is the key to triggering yourself to get out of that that rut and to kind of reorient or reframe? So the third principle, remember I talked about people always act congruently with the world, the way the world occurs for them. The way the world occurs for them happens in language. And the last one hits right on this question. Future language transforms current state. So how you're talking about the future determines who you are now. And if you think when you leave that chair or you're going to go out and meet a customer that all that's going on and that's everything you're facing, your mood is going to be very different than if you go out thinking and believing there's a possibility for them to buy and that they want to buy. That's why they're coming to you. They, they're not there because they, they want to meet you and they're not there for any other reason, but because they're interested and they're looking for a reason to spend their money because they see value. So, you know, it's like this. If you and I were working together and you thought you really believed you were going to double your income in the next year. And I looked up and I looked at the circumstances and I decided from the same circumstances that I'm going to make half of what I made next year. You are going to be very different in that conversation than I am. You know, you're going to be out there planning, looking for how to invest the money, maybe taking a vacation. Maybe you're going to improve your house. You, you're, have a, you're in a different conversation. You're in a, a, a whole different world than I am. I'm in saving, pulling back, figuring out how I can not lose as much as I'm, I believe I'm going to lose, etc. We're going to have a very different presence. And that happens in the sales realm all the time. That's why it's valuable to have a team and to accept and open up and continue to verbalize what's going on in a way that you can reinvent that language. So when you leave to go be with a client, your expectation isn't going to be to confirm how bad things are, but to explore and and uh, act on what's possible because that person's there and that's what drove them there was the possibility. I think that when we enter into this territory, for some folks that are listening to this, guys, some of you are thinking, hey, you know what? I'm starting to smell some some motivational kind of stuff or some squishy personal development sort of stuff. And I think that if I was going to sum up that objection, it's that the guy who thinks he's going to double his income, you know, what if he's wrong? What, what if he's deluding himself? Well, Damn. he very well may be. The point is, if he believes it, he's going to be much more apt to act and in a way that's going to produce it than the guy who's trying not to lose, playing not to lose. I've worked with the head of sales at the Interstate Battery, Microsoft, Disney. I've, I've been involved in some very large deals and working with teams across the, you know, the spectrum. And if you don't make the connection between the way you view the client and your ability to be with them, that's part of the training, 
then then you're you're basically going to continue to recreate the same problems over and over again. You're just rearranging the furniture on the Titanic because when something's not working with a client, it's not an accident that Grant Cardone could walk into a, a, a Harley shop in the Southwest in the middle of winter and sell 11 Harleys while everybody else in one week, while everybody else averages maybe one a month there. That's not an accident. That is so powerful. I just want to pause on that, guys. If you have persistent problems that follow you around, is it more likely that you're continuing to run into new people that are the source of it? Or is it more likely that that's something that's being carried from within? If you're failing in your ongoing interactions with prospects, if there's one objection you can never overcome, if there, if you've had a series of BDM, business development management hires that haven't worked out or that have underperformed or that have started off well but slowly ended poorly, those are opportunities for exploring to, to break through and to find new possibilities. Dan, I do want to talk about the role of a salesperson, I guess the temperament of a salesperson, because I hear you talking about transformation, about how a person can learn new behaviors, patterns of thinkings at the same time. Surely you believe that there is a specific temperament that is well-suited to sales, correct? Yes. Let's just say there's a set of preferences, all right? So when we talk about temperament, that sounds permanent, but temperament comes out of what we prefer. And so let me give you, this is a true story. I'm working with a this asphalt company and they're working with property managers who are working with principals making decisions about their property. And I'm with the sales team. I was hired to help the sales team to come in and, and reorganize it. And one of the things I noticed in the meetings is that this sales team, it was they're telling me all their objections that they're, they're coming up against. And anybody, any salesman knows that if you're selling a product, if you're selling a service, if you're selling some project, there are only so many objections that come out. And if you're aware of those objections, those objections are telling you what the client wants. And one of the objections these gentlemen had and women that were selling their asphalt services to property managers was, I'm working with somebody who doesn't un really understand the nuances of asphalt selling, and they constantly get their bids screwed up. They're not apples to apples, oranges to apples, and they're, they're taking the one that's always the cheapest, or you know, but they're not getting the best service, and over the long run, it's going to be more and blah, blah, blah. And my point to them was, okay, good. So let's really look at what the breakdown is. Let's get, instead of, because they're stating how it is. Well, this is impossible. You don't know what it's like to sell somebody that has got to sell it for you to the, the principal. And I said, well, so what? Maybe I see something you don't. So I spent a week there watching it, and then I came up with a real simple service. I decided to take my bids. I said, you know, with a guy, I was, I was, I worked with two specific people, two sales uh, people, one guy, one woman, and the gal was to me, she was really sharp. I mean, she knew what she was up to. She was much more open. The other guy was, you know, he's my age, sixty something, and he had his mindset: this is just how it works. So I suggested to the two of them, 
Here's what I would do. I would do a screenshot of my bids and how they laid out. I'd and I would walk through it and compare it with the others, etc., or at least with what they want to do. And this is why we're doing this, and this is why we're doing that. And I would make sure that the property manager felt confident about it because they would need to go in and and if they give this to them, they're going to look good because they're going to be able to educate their their boss. And even if they choose somebody else, that's okay. They're going to have a sense of credibility with you until you learn what it is. Well, the gentleman didn't do it. And the gal I was working with did, and she did a really good job. And her sales jumped double in the next two months, doubled up. And she, her closing rate almost, it was amazing how her closing rate went, went way up and her credibility with the, with the property managers she was working with was tremendous. Cause one of them said, look, I could go back and look at that. And then I knew how to talk to the other salesmen that, from the other companies I was comparing with. So all of a sudden, I this gal became a credibility source, even if they weren't going to use it. And she made clear, she said, look, I want the job, but I know if you know what you're doing, you're going to be better at your job. And eventually, if you get that from me, you're coming back to me. And this company charged, they were really, they delivered a great service, but they were mid to the higher end, but they started getting the business because of the value. So that's just an example of how attitude can change it. The other guy ended up, you know, uh, leaving. They ended up, you know, he ended up leaving because he did. He didn't want to do that. He didn't. He was afraid of the tech. He didn't understand it, and he felt like it was, you know, wasn't worth it, his time. So he went off and did something else. So that's the difference between attitude and there. So the gal that actually took your advice, she benefited in the short term by taking a long term perspective on it. Yeah, she's now the sales manager there. Love it. So when we talk about dealing with objections, there are obviously some objections that can be resolved in the short term and you work past it and you've got an immediate buyer. There are other objections that that can't. And in those situations, maybe you don't have the right answer, but by giving people an honest, service-focused orientation, you're able to build the credibility for the long-term goal. You've shared with me the Mastering Objections framework, which is basically a series of abbreviations. It's kind of a at-a-glance sheet. Uh, you know what I'm referring to. I found this absolutely fascinating. I want to share this with the the audience can you give me some background and context on this document that we're going to be sharing with these folks? Sure. When I was um, younger, I, I my brother's probably, I think my brother, Corey, is one of the greatest salesmen I've ever watched. He was a, he worked with Grant Cardone as kind of a partner in the early years when Grant was, he and Grant were involved in transforming the sale, car sales business from a, you know, high pressure you know, manipulative process to a consultative cell and giving people all the information and letting them make the choices going down the road. I can go into how it works, but this was part of it. And the idea was to give the client as much control. You just give them the control. Don't argue with them. Always agree with them and to understand. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. I mean, authentically agree with them. Find out how they're thinking by agreeing with them and listening to them and understanding what it is they're trying to solve and providing them the choices for them to solve it. And these, what we call gambits, are ways to get around many of the objections. So when somebody says to you, you know what, I'm not buying today, I say no problem. 
and then I say, I understand. And so allow me to help you do whatever you need. What is it that you'd like to do? Right? That's a simple question. Right? So now, what have I done? I'm not arguing with him. I'm not trying to get him to buy. I just want to understand why he's there and how I can serve that purpose. I want to You're facilitating the exploration of, of, the, of the context. That's right. I want him to know I'm fine that he doesn't buy. I'm fine that wherever he's at, I'm okay with it. In fact, that's the best place to start. Let's get going. You know, he would say, <laughs> I'm not buying. Well, I wouldn't expect you to. That's good news. You know, anything to get beyond the, the and I, I was selling cars when I started doing this, so it's a different deal. I've sold cars. I've sold insurance. I've traded ships. I've sold uh, tax shelter and cash flow investments. I've sold businesses. I, you know, I've had the privilege of doing, and these things work all the time, especially when somebody's spun up. What I want to do is, it's a gambit so that they don't have to be stuck in that place. They know I'm not trying to move them. I'm just there to understand. Spun up is put lightly. When you think about when somebody comes on to the lot, they're ready to do war. They're, they're, they're perked up. They're ready to have that salesperson pounce on them, and there's so much kind of pent-up energy. This is almost just like a release valve just to bring things down to parity to actually have a conversation. And then now you want to talk about attitude. When you go in and somebody comes on a lot like that, if you take it personal, you're gone. You're going to be cannon fodder. But if it's a game, if you understand that that's what they're going to do, game meaning that they're coming on that way because of the way the industry is. So now... I'm going to relax into that. I'm going to be okay with that. I'm not going to take it personal. It's okay. They can say whatever they want to me. I know my job. I know they're there to buy or they wouldn't have walked on the lot. So so why don't I just relax and figure out, understand how that's going to look? No problem, right? And so these gambits can be used. There's nine of them. And they can be used in multiple different ways. But the idea is to get connected and get over there shoulder to shoulder facing the same horizon, not face to face, you know, trying to get into a polarized situation, but shoulder to shoulder, what is this person wanting to do? How can I support them to do it? And they get that I'm here for that. And that's, that's why you want to have yourself squared away that you're not in survival when you're doing this. You're there authentically working with this person. I've, and it, and it, I'm telling you, man, the results of being able to master these gambits will get you into the client in a way that will help you hear what they have to say. And I could tell you, I know property management. I've had a lot of experience with it and it could get pretty doggone heated. Um, and so I want to make sure I'm able to understand what the upset is and what's the problem that needs to be solved and can I help them do that and if I can't can I help them find who can sure you know you're reminding me of course that all of life is sales having an angry tenant in your office that's sales right you're trying to persuade this person to de-escalate the conversation and to resolve it amicably when I look at these gambits what i like about this is it's not a script and what's the what's the number one problem with the script is that it feels robotic to be repeating these long phrases paragraphs etc whereas this is more of a micro redirection and what you guys aren't seeing as you're listening to this but you'll see when you download it on the podcast episode is that there is also body language that goes with each one of these gambits dan if i'm kind of intuiting this 
it almost feels like there's a muscle memory element where you're conditioning yourself to to set yourself back on track and not be thrown off by whatever response you get. It's as much for me as the I've got to remember that my job is to serve this person and the first part of serving them is getting over there on their side. And that's what these things help me do. They help me connect and get on their map, on their worldview, see what they're seeing and understand their problem. And then I can start to see how my service or product or project could serve them or not. Or not, right? I mean, it could be yeah. that some they they move on and and buy with somebody else. But um, maybe you bought yourself a good review on Yelp because you actually treated this person with respect, as opposed to calling them tire kicker and and hoping that they bounce out of town if they're not ready to buy immediately. That long term perspective. Exactly, and you develop a relationship. I watched my brother; he was a six figure car salesman. And he had, you know, he sold the Doobie Brothers all their cars. He and they, for years he sold a lot of great musicians and actors and actresses and others. You know, he had a huge return because he was so good at getting on their side and taking care of their needs. And it was amazing to watch his recurring business was. So every time he added somebody, it was just got bigger and bigger. I watched him make high six figures doing that. So it's pretty interesting. And, you know, he, he, my brother came out of the street and became a car salesman. And he met Grant Cardone, and they developed these, these gambits. And they're phenomenal. It's very early, early stuff. This was back in the mid-90s, early 90s. And he started in the 80s. So these guys are obviously training themselves, but most salespeople are not going to train themselves. And obviously, it's not ideal to expect a salesperson to train themselves. That onboarding process, that first 30, 60, 90 days, what can an owner, what can an entrepreneur do to tee up a salesperson for success during that onboarding phase? That's about a three-phase question. I mean, first, you've got to be really clear about what you want in the position and what kinds of skills make the person eligible for that position. And you know, those basic KPIs, right? These are key performance indicators that you know are vital or essential to the position. And most people don't take the time to really understand what those key performance indicators are. And then the next step is what kinds of personal behavioral preferences does a person need to be engaged in or prefer, like like what kinds of behaviors do this person prefer? Do they match these key performance indicators? Because science has shown that people do what they prefer to do, right? And there's a thing called the enjoyment performance theory out there, and people do what they enjoy uh, seven times more than what they don't enjoy. So you can be very competent at something, but if you don't enjoy doing it, you're not going to want to go to it very much. So understanding what those preferences are and being able to match them up to the job description and the performance indicators is crucial. And so that makes two distinct areas of hiring and onboarding. One is what's the job require. The other one is kind of the black box of hiring, which is what does this person prefer? The person that's successful. And by the way, there's research out there. I I have over 6,500 different job descriptions, and the research behind it is millions. We we have a company that did millions of 
surveys and and uh, assessments in the workplace to understand. And they what they did is they benchmarked the top, middle, and low performers of each position, and they found a correlation between what they prefer to do and their performance. And they came and they realized out of the study that if somebody enjoys 75% of the work that they're doing, they have a three to 400% greater chance of succeeding. So you can see that understanding both what the job needs as far as key performance indicators and what kinds of preferences people need to have where they want to do those things is crucial. And understanding both of those prepares you for the interview, because if you can identify where the where the potential breakdowns are in the first two areas, when you sit down to have the interview, you know what kinds of questions and where to focus the interview to see how they respond and to test and see their own awareness of the potential breakdowns in their own ways and what they prefer to do based on what the job is going to be calling them to do. And so that's finding their suitability. So once they're, you know that they're eligible, they have the skills, are they suitable? Do they have the preferences? Are they suitable for the job? And are they suitable for this culture? Most people don't like to put that kind of discipline, just like most salesmen don't like to train, which is a big, I, I keep training. I go to all kinds of trainings and I've heard all, I still do it. I, last year I went to two different sales trainings. We don't tend to want to educate ourselves and we don't like to do the homework. But if you think of how much it costs you to hire somebody, train them, and then have them blow out, it's well worth the time and effort it takes to really understand the position, what kinds of KPIs it requires, what kinds of what kind of temperament or preferential behavior do people need to have in order to match those KPIs, and then understand how to identify the difference between the two so you can improve your interview process, you'll, you're going to continue to hit and miss. And this is a science, and, and, it, and it works good if you get it down. Once you get it down, it just it rolls, but you've got to lay it like anything else, like any scalable business. You've got to lay these systems in place and hold to them and train your people to do it, and then you're going to see a jump in performance. Yeah, a huge jump. Absolutely, so. golden. Obviously, that that's going to apply to roles outside of sales. When I think about the ROI on the investment, of course, you've got your time, you've got your money, but you've also got the emotional trauma in some cases that I've seen of working with small business owners that have been through the ringer and now they're gun shy, and so the story that they're telling themselves about the future of their organization and their ability to grow and scale is significantly hampered as a result of dealing and, and the way that they've related to a couple of bad hires. Bad, bad hires, you know, that's the wrong phrase, right? There, there I go. I'm telling the story. Mis, mismatches. You know, because it's amazing. When you find what people prefer to do, they're different, and you put them in a place that, call, that actually enables them to use their preferences, it's amazing how they clear up. And the biggest thing I've noticed is that most business owners right now they're feeling the crunch because there's not a lot of talent out there it's it, it, it's a it's a competitive market it's going to get more competitive so understanding the science of developing talent is a big deal and that's why I started talent helix it's it's a clear process and we've got a technology that's scientifically proven to help 
look into that black box of suitability because most people know you, good sales organizations, good organizations that are developing a sales team, they know pretty much what they need eligibility-wise, what kind of skills they need in place. And a guy could, a guy or gal can have those skills, but are they are the way that they are, their preferences, do they fit the position you want to put them in and do they fit the culture? Do they fit the culture you're in? Because you could have somebody who's extremely talented and can do the job, but they don't do well in the culture you have. And being able to identify that's the second level. And it's not really difficult, but because some people have thought this out pretty clearly, but it does require some discipline, just like sales. You got to get those things in. So how far can we realign, though, Dan? Preference one way, preference another. At the end of the day, sales needs to generate revenue. If somebody doesn't have what it takes, you want to know that as soon as possible. As soon as possible. And if they do, and they need some training, one of the things about retaining and engaging people is understanding what they most want and being able to work that into the training process. So let's say I want high pay, I don't, but I don't want to be developed. Well, I know that that's a conversation I got to have with this person and I'm not highly motivated. If somebody wants to be paid well and they're not highly motivated, then I'm going to need to have a conversation with them about the process that it's going to take to get them from where they're at to where they're going so they can understand what it's going to take so they don't come in with a misconception that they're just going to start up and instantly make the big dollars just by showing up at the office every day. I mean, that's an extreme example. But if you're able to identify the key preferences or interests, if you will, in this case, that this person has in working and you can align them with the job and the culture, you're going to have somebody who's not only retained, but they're going to be deeply engaged in the work. And so that's not a difficult process, but it does take some thinking and it requires a simple practice of understanding how to sift those things out. So those are things that most people I've found. That's why we started uh, Talent Helix is because most owners don't have the time to think about that. I mean, you think about running a business there's a lot to be educated about. So, you know, what I'm looking to do is take on an aspect that most business owners just haven't thought about, don't have the, haven't thought about, didn't think they had the time to think about it, didn't maybe even think about its impact. But if I can come in and show them results and help them do that, that's what we do. And we help them break this process down so that they hit at a much higher level of success when they hire somebody. They're clear about how to retain them and engage them and develop them. And we help them understand how to create a succession plan within the organization so people can move up and out as is appropriate. Hmm. You mentioned up and out. Let's talk about the out. What advice would you have or how would you uh, approach the process of letting someone go in a way that serves them as well as the organization as opposed to either uh, having a big blow up or giving them the boot, having hurt feelings, etc.? How would you approach that, that process of, of pushing somebody out of the organization when it turns out that it is time? I mean, the biggest breakdown I've found in developing talent, you know, which includes exiting, uh, is 
communication and the clarity of communication about what's expected, the you know performance-wise, attitudinally as well, and being able to discern between a competency breakdown and an attitudinal breakdown and tracking it and a lot and communicating, enforcing those things on a regular basis so that the the, the person that you're developing understands where they are in their development, what it's going to take to get to where they need to go and by when, what kinds of results do they need to produce, and the ongoing conversations are, that are in there so that if it's time to exit somebody or when it's time to exit them, they're clear about what the exit, they're, they're either ready to choose it themselves, they understand what's why it's being done because it's been documented, they've been talked, it, they've been coached, and they're as frustrated as you are. And most of the time, it's letting, letting somebody go is not only good for the team, it's probably good for them. But if you haven't had those discussions, they get convoluted in all kinds of drama. And this reduces it, doesn't completely eliminate it by any means, but it certainly reduces it dramatically, which improves both, you know, the culture and and the reputation of the organization as people leave. Okay. So if you're having blow-ups, if you're having dramatic employee exits, that's probably an indicator that there's something wrong going on well in advance of that person's departure. Because what I hear you saying is if that person is habitually underperforming and that underperformance is habitually being reviewed and communicated in light of the expectations that you've already set. And you're providing training and, you know, there's you're, you're actually you're providing a track for them that's that they have helped create with you. They, they, they've got to understand that they're not doing the job first, right? They, you've got to get, and if you haven't cl- set up clear KPIs and you haven't, and a job description, and they don't have to be microscopic KPIs, but just general, then that person can break down what they're going to do and by when. Then if you don't have those in place, nobody knows when the job's not being done except for the, that the numbers aren't there. And you don't know how to get to those numbers because you haven't chunked it down. Guys, before I move on, I do want to mention our show sponsor, the PM Grow Summit, which by now, if you've been listening to this podcast for any period of time, you've heard me mention multiple times. It is the event for property management entrepreneurs, folks that are growth-minded, that are serious about taking their company to the next level. We're bringing in amazing lineup of keynotes. There's going to be some great networking with folks that are really committed to bettering themselves and remaining a student of the game. Dan, I know that you have hosted a number of events and trainings, and you've worked with students that have invested a lot of time and money in those events. In your mind, in a best-case scenario, what does a student take away from a well-run event that makes it worth the investment? Well, I, I, for me, they take. I, I would take away, like if I go to a to an event, I want to take away something that I can put to work in myself for my business and I can see results out of it. So one of the things I do is I go to a number of events a year. I read a lot of books and I read and, and go to events in multiple different industries because I never know when I'm going to hear something or see something from an unrelated field that's going to be an impact in my field. And so I'm looking for that, What you know, what can I put to work that's going to help me be more effective at what I'm up to. And that could come from a property management convention. It could come from a sales convention in tech hardware. It could come from any other different idea source. So I like to network for ideas 
not necessarily for resource. You know, because resource networking is, it's like, it gets really tight fast because everybody's trying to get the resource. I'm looking for ideas because if I get the idea, I'll find the resource. And I found that going to a lot, like I, I went to a, I went to a tech, a high tech convention where entrepreneurs were talking about a particular type of software that I knew nothing about. But what I discovered there was a way to, to, to filter information off the internet that would help me find my audience, SEO-wise. And just listening to them, I would never have thought about it, right? And I, I, went, I was in San Francisco, I saw it was on, I paid 150 bucks to go, and I went for two days, and I found a couple of things that I went out and used. The main thing is to find an idea that can, that's relevant to your work, right? And, and then think about how that fits. A lot of times people just check out because they don't like a particular event or they don't like the way it's going. Instead of persevering and networking and finding and listening to a lot of different speakers to find that one gem or two gems. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I love it. I think that's a great way to approach any kind of an ongoing education event is to be committed to making it worth your while, being committed to looking for ideas that you can cross-apply in a way that makes sense for your business. And obviously, there's always a bridge there that has to be made by the entrepreneur that's willing to, to go through that work. Dan, I want to transition now to the rapid-fire section of this interview, where I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and I just want to get some guttural answers from you. The first of those questions is, what advice do you wish somebody had given you when you first got started in sales? If it is to be, it's up to me. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Fair enough. Straight from the heart. All right. Next question. Dan, who do you learn from? Um, everyone. Uh, I, and that's how it comes up. I, I have learned from everyone. Like I said, I'm 62 years old, but I love this generation of pe- guys, people, because there's so there's so many new ways of looking at things. I've, it's hard. I sit on YouTube at times and just click through them. Different. I mean, I'll just put an, an you know just a, a random subject in and just listen to see if there's something new. And uh, like for instance, this kid Jason Silva. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's. I just turned him on one time. Fantastic. Uh, you know, there's just a number of guys online that you can listen to. So for me, um, everyone, there's something to learn from almost anyone. Speaking of learning, are there any books, one or two books in particular, that have really had a significant impact on you? Yes, Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. Perfect. Listed as a classic, haven't read it myself. It's supposed to be some dense reading, no? Eh, not bad. He explains himself well, but really relevant when it comes to being uh, agile in a very quickly changing marketplace and staying anti-fragile. We tend to make choices that make us brittle or fragile to the changes that are inevitable in the culture and in the world. And so ways to relate like that. He's very clear. He's an engineer. He does a good job. All right, guys, check it out. Next question. Dan, what's the hardest part about keeping the student mindset over time? Um, Well, the arrogance of success. (laughs) Doesn't take much to throw you off, huh? No. (laughs) 
I bought the t-shirt a few times. (laughs) (laughs) I listened to your last podcast and you were talking about the process of continual reawakening. That really meant a lot to me. It's easy to create this standard of, of getting woke, of waking up, of having this revelation and expecting that it's going to stay with you at all times. When in reality, it's like this yo-yo thing and that doesn't necessarily have to be a guilt trip as long as you're making progress and it's all a part of the journey. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, my dad's 82 years, 84 years old. I was talking to him the other night, and he's vital as all get out. He's running a multi-million dollar company, and uh, he loves it. Every day gets out of bed. And I, I asked him, I said, you know, how do you stay so alive? He said, because I keep reminding myself that life is eternal and I'm temporal. So there's so, if things are eternal and I'm temporal, there's a lot still to learn. Right? I love it. So, That's some wisdom right there. Last question of the day, and I am eager to ask this one to you. Dan, in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred? Uh, I believe they're bred. All right, we'll leave it at that. We will leave it at that. Everybody's got a different take. Dan, if folks want to listen and learn more about what you're up to, about what you have going on with the Talent Helix. Maybe check out your podcast, your newsletter, which I highly recommend. I can't believe that you give that stuff away for free. What's the best way for them to uh, look you up and get connected? Well, there's two. Um, the TalentHelix.com, uh, and the other one is BloodAndEthos.com. Um, both of them... Blood and Ethos is a little more developed because I started working on that earlier. Talent Helix is the same technology framed in business. Both of them, my main newsletter now is coming off of Blood and Ethos, but I'm, we're just about ready to get started on the Talent Helix. So go to both, check them out. Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. I think our audience had a lot of takeaways. This is certainly an episode I know I'll be re-listening to. Thanks again. Let's stay in touch. Thank you.